everyone. It's the Life of Jam live video podcast. We have Jose Hernandez Diaz here, the author of the epic, epic, epic book. Oh, I can't wait to talk about it. The Fire Eater. Published by Texas Review Press in 2020. Um, I'm going to talk to Jose in a minute, but first, let me read his bio. But I also want to say, I just adore this collection, so everyone needs to pick it up. And it's sublime, it's surreal, it's musical, it's rhythmic, it's haunting. I've read it three times now. In my notes, I say two times, but I read it this morning again at five in the morning. So I've read it three times. So Jose Hernandez Diaz is a 2017 NEA Poetry Fellow. He is the author of The Fire Eater, published by Texas Review Press in 2020. His work has a appeared widely, including in the American Poetry Review, Boulevard, Colorado Review, Iowa Review, Poetry, the Southern Review, the Yale Review, and in the Best American Non-Required Reading Anthology from 2011. He teaches creative writing online and edits for Frontier Poetry. Welcome, Jose. You are in. I'm going to unmute you. Are you there? Thank you. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am so happy to have you. You know, I, I'd seen some of your posts and then I read some of your poetry and I was just blown away. Your chat book, The Fire Eater, is such a powerful testament. There's such a voice here. So let's just start out just generally. Tell my audience a little bit about your journey to this book, to poetry, to creative writing. I know you went to Berkeley for undergrad for English and creative writing. Then you got your MFA from Antioch. And, you know, as someone whose own journey is kind of a little long, I was, I'm was i a public defender. It took me 15 years to publish my memoir. Tell us about your journey to this book. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's been a long journey. Um, I started writing in high school, short stories and essays. And uh, my high school English teacher noticed um, some talent there with otherwise um, bad grades. So she, <laughs> she um, encouraged me to study harder and um, try harder. And um, that's when I started getting all A's. And just uh, wow. before that, I was playing football a lot and uh, into like rock and roll and and just sort of having a good time, making friends, partying, stuff like that. SoCal lifestyle. <laughs> and then I and then I started taking We have school. this in common. Yeah. <laughs> I parted away my senior year and dropped out and found my way later, but go ahead. Yeah, So so then after meeting that teacher, I started reading more on my own and having an interest in literature and writing. And then um, I didn't have the grades to get to a, a university straight up. And um, and then I did two years there and then, and then I transferred to UC Berkeley and um, studied English. Yeah, studied English. Also, my sister before that was an English major. So that kind of influenced me in terms of um, an English teacher as well in high school. So... Um, at Berkeley, I, I took some creative writing classes. Those were the most, um, you know, I enjoyed those the most out of, out of the rest of the curriculum. And, um, you know, I was having trouble after I got my degree figuring out what I wanted to do. Mm. I didn't see many teachers that looked like me. I never, I never had a Mexican teacher growing up in wow. Northern Orange County or, um, you know, much less a, a Mexican male English teacher. So, you know, I never saw someone that looked like me teaching English. I didn't think I could do it. I was more into, um, you know, underground music. And, and then I started going to the public library 
and um, I started discovering contemporary poetry. Wow. And, um, po poets of color and poets my age. I didn't, you know, before that I was just thinking it was like Shakespeare and and more, um, you know, the romantics and and a lot of the white canon that you that you read in, in undergrad and, and high school. So when I discovered contemporary poetry, I just started reading a lot of it. You know, I didn't go out much. That was like my new rock and roll. And, <laughs> and so I just I became that. introverted. And, and um, yeah, like I said, I wouldn't go out on the weekends. And I, I was just reading. And then eventually the poems started coming out of me, you know, just mm -hmm. after you read so much, you pick oh, up, yeah. you pick up um, the language and, and the forms and, and the cadence and, and um, the imagery and, so I, I sort of always say that it was like um, when you're doing time and then and then someone throws like a guitar into the into the prison and I just figured out how to play on my own, you know, like just from yeah. reading. So. Um, but you know what I love? And I've been really lucky in the sense that I always find these intersections with my guests. And what I love about what you said, and I was just talking to someone about this today, is having someone to model yourself after. Yeah. is really so important for our first gen kids like you and I. Yeah. And I I had a Mexican history teacher, Mr. Ramos, when I was in uh, high school, but other than that, no teachers of color. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it's just like, I didn't even know of Sandra Cisneros when I was in high school, you know? And yeah. I just, I too always thought my voice, I, I just didn't see my voice anywhere. And I was like, I'm not a writer. People don't write like this. A college professor, community college professor called my writing melodramatic, which all Latinas are, sorry. But, you know, and, but what you said about- All like, young people writing, are, I think. Yeah, and yeah. all young people are, right? And I look yeah. back at my old stuff when I was a kid, when I was 19, I was like, it wasn't that bad. You know, it wasn't- But also a lot of times back then, the, the white professors were very dismissive of people of color, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, we were talking earlier, you grew, you were born in Buena Park, did you say? I was born in Anaheim, raised in, in mm -hmm. Buena Park. Yeah. All my relatives are from there. Um, we both went to community college. That whole journey, no one talks yeah. about how dedicated and smart you have to be to make it out of junior college to university. The fact that, you know, you went to junior college and then you transferred to Berkeley. I mean, that was a huge achievement just in itself, right? Yeah, no, like that's when I started getting more serious. I stopped the partying, you know, I was mm -hmm. working part-time. Um, at one point I had to take eight classes in order to, in order to graduate on time. Yeah. So I had to get special permission from, um, I don't remember the admission, whatever the department was, they had to sign a letter. And that, that's what finally broke my 4.0 because I ended up getting four A's and four B's because it was just so much and working, you know. So, um, but yeah, Who else could do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So when I went to USC law school for a semester, they don't let you work. And I knew this manager in Riverside that ran this tarot and he would give me shifts and I would just pick them up like on the sly. I had to sign something saying I wouldn't work. I'm like, what are they going to do? Sue me? I mean, come on. Yeah. But I mean, this whole concept, this whole bias that people can afford not to work, right? When yeah. you come from a Latin immigrant, uh, first gen, second gen household where your my mom got her GED when she was in her 30s. My dad, you know, didn't go to no one in my family had went to college before me and my sisters. It's just we don't there's no one to guide you. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting. 
Yeah, no, my parents, you know, they grew up in, in ranchos in Mexico, mm -hmm. so they didn't go to elementary school. You know, they when they were kids, they had to take care of their siblings because they were older. My mom mm -hmm. was the third oldest and my dad was the oldest. So that's sort of been a big theme in my in my writing as well. Like I write a lot of um, you know, odes to family and you know, the sacrifice that they've done. Because even though they don't have, you know, edu you know, education. There's there's still a lot there that you that can inspire and just it teaches you a lot about respecting everybody and treating everybody well and just um, you know I've 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 been at the kitchen table before and I've told my mom tell me a story about your childhood and she said oh I have so many and she started telling me the story and I pulled out my laptop and I just started writing it in English and you know some Spanish and um, and then I ended up submitting it to the Georgia Review, which had rejected me for like five years. And they accepted uh, two of those poems. Wow. So, so there's, you know, poetry, that's the beauty of poetry, is that um, you can realize the beauty of, of most individuals, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. fact that you're able to capture mom's story and that's the first place that that journal took it. There was something that must've been the heart in it, you know, and the truth. I mean, you know, when we write our truth and we, we write, you know, RuPaul says, take what you're most ashamed of. So like me taking my high school dropout story and yeah. making that the focus, you taking your family that have worked so hard to get you where you are, the Berkeley graduate that most people would say, wow. And, but you go home and you're sitting at the kitchen table with your mom writing a poem about her, you know? Yeah, and that's and, um, like will make you cry. That's how beautiful it is. No, right? I, I think I think I did maybe cry when I wrote it because mm -hmm. I was like, I realized it was also a really good poem, you know, like yeah. So I was just like, damn, like, and also one of my more known poems is uh, Jorge Ramos is from Guanajuato, and um, that was when I was watching a political speech, and and Ramos was on television, and and my father kept insisting that Ramos was from Guanajuato, even though he's from Mexico City, <laughs> just because it gave him a sense of pride that someone like me can, like him, can can be respected and intelligent, you know, and and, and educated. And so when yeah, I got the- Yeah, he's claiming him, right? He's, yeah, he's, he's claiming he, him, even though he's, he's like, even yeah. made up an elaborate story that he's seen him in Serrano, Guanajuato. And <laughs> so that's part of the poem. And then when, <laughs> when, I, when I met, I um, who was it? Rigoberto Gonzalez. Um, at AWP one year, he was the the judge in charge of the NEA fellowship that year, and he had mentioned that um, that piece in particular stood out the most from my submission. So, wow, yeah. I could feel it even when you talked about it. When you talked about your mother and your father, and writing those poems, one about your mother, one about your father, it was really interesting. So, really quick, um, I yeah. really want to, for people to hear your work. So, um, like I said, the collection is called The Fire Eater, that image of fire, of heat, of burning. It permeates, it lingers. We'll talk about some of the craft, and you have such fine craft that you use in um, creating this collection that is very surreal. Um, so if you could read at least five minutes, whatever you want, parts you want to read, I'm going to ask you about some of it, whether or not you read it. So I'm going to put the camera on you and feel free to start. Okay, thank you. I'm going to start off with a prose poem called The Fire, which was published in the Cincinnati Review. The Fire. A man woke up in a burning building. He ran to the front door. 
It was jammed. Then he threw a chair through the window. It shattered and glass fell everywhere. He was careful as he climbed out of the window. It was a three-story building. A preacher was down at the bottom waiting to catch him. He jumped into the preacher's arms. On impact, they both transformed into pigeons. They flew away from the fire, far away from the fire. This next piece is called The Flame. So um, returning to the, the fire theme, The Flame. A flame rode a skateboard to the corner liquor store. It bought a pack of Marlboro Lights. It packed the smokes and ignited a cigarette on its forehead. It inhaled the smoke. The flame rode a skateboard down Beach Boulevard. It did tricks on the board. It saw a lady flame leave Target and asked for her phone number. The flame was denied. It continued on the board all the way to Pacific Coast Highway. It began to rain. The flame pondered the redundancy of rain. Suddenly, it fell off the board and scattered into ash. The flame was no longer a flame, no longer a flame, a flame, flame. And um, this next prose poem was published in Bennington Review, and it was also read at a convocation for Bennington College a couple years ago. The Man and the Antlers. A man picked wild berries in the forest, ate them, and suddenly grew antlers. He was shocked. He ran around in circles. Why, why? Then he saw a small creek. He looked into the water. He saw his antlers in the reflection, strong and sharp. Why me, he said, why me? Then a bear approached him. He was startled for a moment, but then charged at the bear with force. And um, I guess I'll read one more. Let's see. This one is called The Abandoned Shore. And uh, it, it was uh, nominated for the Pushcart by North American Review. If I can find it, here it is. The Abandoned Shore. A man woke up on an abandoned shore. He had no idea where he was. There weren't any people around, only seagulls, sand, an ocean. He picked up a sand dollar and threw it into the ocean. Then he took off his shirt and jumped in the water. It was very cold, but it didn't bother him. Then he saw a ship on the horizon. It had a pirate skull flag and cannons. The man quickly exited the water and put on his clothes. He ran as fast as possible away from the beach. When he finally stopped running, he was in the middle of a large city. He was elated to hear the sounds of traffic. Immediately, he fell asleep at a bus stop in the middle of the city. Wow. Very powerful. Interesting that you read a bunch from part one. Um, and we're going to talk about how you structure this. But I think people could hear the beauty in your work, but also the technique. So you use this technique where you start every poem with either a man, a flame, a fire eater, um, a mime, the man in the Pink Floyd shirt, a skeleton, and I noticed when I was reading that the only time you use that is when you're talking about the man in the Pink Floyd shirt. Otherwise, you use a fire eater, a flame, a man does this. So what did that just come to you that you would do every poem 
with this technique because what it did for me, um, it was surreal, it was haunting, and it gave you it gave the reader a little bit of distance. But then we're like, oh, how close can we get? Like, what is this? Like, talk about yeah. that if you can. Yeah, before that, I was writing primarily first person uh, political um, political identity poetry about my about my life, about politics. Um, when I was in my twenties. And then I discovered um, prose poetry and the technique of writing in third person. So mm-hmm. it's not technically about your real life, you know? And yeah. So just with that sort of um, persona, I was able to um, incorporate third person. And it was just a writing technique, you know, to start off with the line, a man went to the grocery store and then you just improvise from there. And a lot of the surrealists mm. were into improvisation and, discovering what they were going to write about in that process as opposed to going in with the uh, with the scheme about you know with an agenda about what they were going to write about so so that was that was what um you know the surrealist techniques involved there and it reminded me so much of Bowie the way he took on that Ziggy character and like just the way that you know you talk about ass I know some of this is Pink Floyd too but like the astronaut astronaut and then the mime which Bowie was in the mind I like I don't know if it's just because I'm obsessed with music and Bowie but I really did see and Lou Reed and like just the rhythm of your language and like you said you're riffing almost like you feel the music in it I just I I wanted to I want to hear you read the whole thing aloud like an album you know like yeah an audio of it yeah I think um you know, in that spirit of riffing or like jazz, jazz musician mm-hmm. would do, you know, I like the, the the challenge of improvising and, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be an underground rapper, mm. but I couldn't, I couldn't flow, you know, I could write, but I couldn't maintain the, um, the language and in, 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 um, in a verbal sense. So I think um, a lot of this is just me and my failed rock star days and, <laughs> Just wanting to, you know, uh, I was always interested in like the 60s counterculture, the avant-garde and just folks that were sort of pushing boundaries. And, you know, now that I'm getting older, I'm getting a little more, a little more um, traditional and more into form, not traditional in the political or Christian sense, but just um, more into form and, and things like that. But when I was younger, it was more about pushing the envelope avant-garde and, you know, basically I wanted, I wanted to people to feel like it was like a guitar solo, you know, as opposed to something overly dry and academic. This, this, I think this collection represents a lot of my twenties, you know, my late twenties, early thirties. And um, I know at that age, you know, people are already settling down and things like that, but I think I was a late bloomer, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're talking to a late bloomer herself. And what I love, I do hear that 60s counterculture. I heard the Velvet Underground. I heard the doors. Um, There's a lyric by Jim Morrison, whose poem, I Am the Passenger, is a song by Iggy Pop that Susie Sue sang, I am the passenger and I ride and I ride. That's what this reminded me of. Like that whole, like they're taking on a, like, a character too, like a mime or a skeleton or a man in a pink Floyd shirt. So the other thing I have to ask you about is yeah. when you read um, the poem about, there, you talk about the city a lot. 
Yeah. What is this about the city? What does the city represent? Is it alienation? Is it belonging? What is it? Because I was it's, trying to figure it out. Yeah. No, it's both. You know, I was in, <laughs> I was interested in the city from when I was reading the French Surrealists a lot, and they mm. would talk about just the the you know the relationship of mankind with 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 the city and the subways, and it is alienation, but at the same time, we're like part of it. You know, like yeah. in a collage like asymmetrical way you know but um but yeah i tried to capture you know southern california a bit oh you did it's a bit in the background you know it's not necessarily um politically charged i would say it's more just um impressionistic i think definitely because the 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 poem that you read that mentions it is the abandoned shore and it's also like capturing the blue collar aspect you talk about a bus stop you know and like someone who used to take the bus that didn't have a car for much of her 20s. Um, yeah. I appreciated that. I mean, because you don't, the interesting thing, and I know you do this in your other work, is culturally, you know, you, you're kind of wondering where does, if, if we didn't know who wrote this, yeah. would we know that a Latino wrote? And I don't think you need to. I, I'm glad in a way that it's ambiguous. But yeah. I know in some of your other work, culture plays a stronger role. But what I loved about this book is it's almost like every man, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. clearly LA. You talk about the Dodgers, you talk about, you know, skyscrapers and downtown LA and Hollywood and Venice. And so you capture SoCal and, uh, you know, and you do, there is a Latin component to this, but you have to read a little deeper to find it. You know, yeah, it's, it's not, not it's definitely not, it's not stereotypical or um, mm-hmm. what you're, I think, you know, yeah. what, what we expect, you know? But also, mm-hmm. I know I had one time this, um, this like, uh, this. I think he was white or maybe very light-skinned, I don't know, but he was claiming to be Chicano, and he would always hype me up, and then he finally read the collection, and he gave it, like, a two-star review on Goodreads, and he was like, this is just some, you know, like, s- some dude in a, in a Nirvana shirt, he said. He thought, instead of the Pink Floyd shirt, he was like, it's some, some dude in a Nirvana shirt, you know? So I've always battled with, with, these um expect cultural mm-hmm. expectations and you know growing up in northern orange county um in the in the late 90s early 2000s and and uh early 90s as well um it was a mixed community it was um you know we didn't really talk about race it was mm-hmm. like you just you just uh you had friends of all kinds of races and it was more about what you were into music sports mm-hmm. and so growing up, I didn't really think about race. I didn't want to write about race. I wanted to write about um, the future and just sort of like mixed and above mm-hmm. that. You know what I mean? Like that was beneath us to like to think about race. You know, like we we, we were just yeah. But then like I moved to Norway. Especially Norwalk. being into alt music, right? Because yeah. um, there's there was we there was a Boyle Heights Latino punk scene, but not in the I either wasn't. Um, we were just a mixed race group of people: black, white, brown. And yeah. we all love punk and post-punk. And we didn't talk about, oh, we're Latin punkers. We, that wasn't, there were suicidals that were primarily Latinos at my school. But like, we didn't talk about race in that scene. It was inclusive though, if you know what I mean. It's yeah, weird. yeah. Like, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say, but. Um, but no, but, but that cultural stereotype. I remember someone, you don't listen to Power 106. You don't speak Spanish. You're not this. And I always had to justify myself. And now I don't justify myself anymore. F all y'all. I am who I am. I'm a pocha. My mom's Mexican. My dad's white. It makes me no less Latina. Sorry. It doesn't. I always say we're not a monolith, you know, like 
not one Latino is not the same as the other. That's racist, you know, to think that. So, um, you know, but I always did listen to hip hop still. And now I listen to a lot of oldies and I always think like, Mm -hmm. damn, they were onto something, you know what I mean? Like, so especially neo neo soul. Um, But um, so, yeah, that was like growing up. I was like, I'm not going to really write about race, you know? And then I moved to Norwalk and it was like 99% Mexican, Chicano. And, you know, at first I was having a hard time fitting in, alienated. But then after just years of living there, I, you know, I embraced it. And, you know, um, I feel more alienated when I go back to Orange County now. So it's kind of just like, um, um, it's almost absurd. You know what I mean? Like everything's based on where you're from, where your influences, um, you know, but, um, a lot there, there's a lot of important issues with race as well, you know. Yeah, of um, course. Like we're talking yeah. about role models and and opportunities. Um, you know, growing up, I didn't have a lot of English teachers that looked like me, and that that's why I struggled initially finding my footing in in um, the English departments and and creative writing departments. So, um, you know, as I grew older, I became more aware of the socially. Um, conscious factors of of uh, literature, and so it's in there. My, I feel like my collection is a oh, hybrid. it's in there. Yeah, in, in not not in the not in the fire eater, but in my full length. In the fire eater, it's it's a bit you know, um, like you're saying, every man. And um, the only thing I would say, like you were talking about the blue collar um, aspect of of the, he's a struggling artist, you know. So yep. a lot of it is is about struggling as an artist to to. Uh, to find footing, to find economic stability in a capitalist society. So a lot of it does have that aesthetic of, um, you know, back against the wall, sort of starving artists of my 20s, you know. Definitely. Going with the surrealists and all that artistic thing again. Um, So as a Bowie fan, we're talking about that. You talk about the moon, the astronaut. Could you read those two poems, page 18 and 19? Um, I think the poems are um, the moon and how far is the moon. I just, I don't know what it is about these two poems. I just, I could read them a hundred times and I would find something new. So if you don't mind, I'm going to put it just on you real quick while you read these two poems from your collection. Sounds good. This first one is called The Moon. A man woke up on the surface of the moon. He didn't float away. He sat on the pale floor. He pulled out a cigarette and took a drag. He saw the earth in the distance. It looked like a blue and green tennis ball, only significantly larger. He remembered his childhood in California, how he wanted to be an astronaut when he grew up. Nothing could stop him now. And this next piece is called How Far Is the Moon? A man played an acoustic guitar on the surface of the moon. He didn't float away. He looked at the earth in the distance. It reminded him of his family in California, nostalgia. Then he looked at the stars. Next, he played a song he'd written. It was called How Far Is the Moon? It was about his experience on the moon, but also autumn. When he finished playing, he took out a cigarette and took a drag. Only one thought remained. None of the stars are the same. Wow. <laughs> I got goosebumps. I wrote Major Tom on How Far Is the Moon. Um, I love that character you take on with this, you know, person that wants to be a man who wants to be an astronaut. And just it's so surreal. You're, the whole book is surreal. And like I said, the craft is so evident. 
And then you have this whole part where you talk, you have a section, I think it's in two or three, where you use, um, it's in two, the man in a, a man in a Pink Floyd t-shirt. Um, who is the man in the Pink Floyd t-shirt? Is that you? And why Pink Floyd? It could be me. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think that um, it has to be me, but I think the man in the Pink Floyd shirt, he's, he's sort of a daydreamy character that is capable of, of imagination and, and uh, sensitivity and wonder and, and um, improvisation and, and just going with the flow and, and uh, you know, a dreamer idealist type. So um, yeah, at that, at that point in my life, I was discovering Pink Floyd and, and before that I always heard about Pink Floyd and it, it always bored me, you know, but mm-hmm. as, as I, you know, matured into my late twenties, I started to see the beauty of it and um, the sophistication of the, of the, of the musicality and, and just um, it was, it was soft and, and dark and hard and mm-hmm. it was like, it was everything, you know? So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I just wanted to write a series about, about this figure. And then that's when I branched out to write um, the man in the, the Chicano Batman shirt series, <laughs> which is a local band here in, um, yeah on the East side. And um I've seen them live. They're really good. Yeah. So then I started thinking, you know, like um, working with, with, um, with, with men with, with band shirts, you know, I had a man in the rage against the machine shirt. Um, What a man in MF doom shirt, who is an underground rapper who just passed last year. And um, so, yeah, I just, and, and a lot of those poems are influenced also by the music of, of that artist in, in subtle ways. I have, so where do we find that collection about the, the band t-shirt? Is it in different literary journals or are you going to publish something um, just of that? Yeah, they're spread out throughout the internet and, and different journals. Um, the Parachutist only has the Man in the Pink Floyd shirt. And then my other manuscript called Bad Mexican, Bad American has um, Chicano Batman, MF Doom, Rage Against the Machine and um, Fleetwood Mac, I believe. Oh. So that one has more diverse um, uh, musicians as well. It's so cool because, like, I knew this and we had never met. I did not know your musical taste. And when I read this collection, I'm like, this dude is a music dude. Like, I just knew you're in. So, um, even before you, before we got, sorry, even before we got on this interview, I was a little bit anxious. I'm, I'm sort of an anxious person. And then I just put on some music here in the, in the, uh, in the study room. And I started just like vibing out and I was not worried about anything. <laughs> so music has always done that. Too. It's therapeutic, you know? I was do I do that before every podcast. I listen to Bowie. Yeah. I definitely. just chill out. Sometimes Moby, if I want to read, I can't read and listen to lyrics for some reason. I think I'm too much of a music and a reader at the same no, I'm time. I like that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I love your influence. You know, we were talking about Rage, who I think is training this summer, and I want to see them live. I've never seen them live. And, you know, I was not, I so in the 80s, I was this punk, post punk girl. In the 90s, I was a club rat, really into house music and stuff. Would go to clubs and then um, did not know like the Nirvana, any of that stuff really till much later. And rage is just so politically relevant, more so even now. 
right? I mean, I don't know what it is about their music, but they resonate. Oh, yeah. I think I was just thinking that the other day that um, their times, they were political times, but not mm-hmm. as much. So now if they if they had just came about right now, I think they would just be like the number one band again, you know? Yeah. But um, but yeah. And so, he's Latino, right? The, he, and he's from the OC, the lead singer. Yeah, I think um, mm-hmm. his parents, I think his dad was a muralist in the Chicano movement, in the Chicano renaissance of the 60s and 70s. And his mother... I, I don't. I could be wrong, but I think she was like a professor. Mm-hmm. I think so at UC Irvine. Irvine. Yeah. yeah, grew up in Irvine. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't know that. You know, until recently, I was looking him up and going, "Okay, when can I go see this band live?" So you live in LA County, is that right now, yeah. or do you live in OC? Um, no, I live in LA County right now, Southeast County. Okay, and you have family in the IE. How do you feel about the Southern California writer community? For other writers out there listening, like what can we do as Latinos to like come together, right? Because sometimes it's hard to find each other. It's amazingly hard considering it's such a small community. Yeah, I think you know, visit the venues beyond Baroque in Venice, mm-hmm. um, different places in Long Beach, and uh, Sims Sims Library in South in the South LA. So there's a lot of different spots. It kind it's kind of hard right now. Well, it was kind of hard for the past couple of years because of COVID. But yeah. um, before that, I was honestly, I was introverted. You know, I didn't go out much. And I, w- I went like a year where I didn't even do a reading, you know. So, and I felt like the mm-hmm. LA scene was very clicky and, and spoken yes. word and judgmental. And you're not political enough for me. And you're a sellout because you don't speak perfect Spanish. And yeah. So they're very, I, I don't, I can't stand judgmental people. You know what I mean? Like I grew yeah. up with all kinds of different people. To the point where, like, I don't like when people try to limit you to be one thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Well, and it's such a shame that you didn't do a reading for a year because your work just screams to be read aloud. I mean, and, and it's beautiful on the page, too, which is wonderful as well. But there's this uh, poem called The Piñata that that's where I saw your culture referenced a little bit. But let's talk about COVID. So this came out in 2020. Um, how did how did you find your publisher? Just because we have a lot of writers that watch this and they kind of like to hear people's stories, yeah. How you yeah. got your publisher and before that, I was submitting a, a full length called the Parachutist, which uh, the first half is a uh, personal narrative, linear verse, you know, identity, growing up uh, first gen. So, um, and then the second half was the surreal, surreal prose poetry. So it was a bit split personality, you know. And I was having trouble landing it. Um, you know, eventually it became finalist for the National Poetry Series and Colorado Prize. And but I did some things there where I made it more fluid and and um less um you know strictly um strictly bipolar, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um yeah. So so um what was your question again? Well, well, I was asking how COVID and how you how COVID impacted the marketing. Okay, but before yeah. that, how how yeah. this came to publication, and then I want to know if you're ever going to read it to music. Like, if you you know, would you ever have someone play guitar and read? Oh yeah, stuff? I'd love to do that. I always yeah. thought about that or jazz or something. Um, but um, so I was having trouble landing the first full length with with both um, dueling aesthetics. So right. I said, um, an editor hit me up. We have a mutual friend, and he said, "Do you have something to send me?" 
you know, I just became the, the head of Texas Review Press. And I said, should I send him the full length or the, the one that I just did a couple of days ago where I, where I made it into a chapbook and it's one voice, you know? Mm-hmm. So I said, I think, that, I think it's, more, it's more unified as the fire eater. So I sent it to him and in a couple hours he was like, let's publish it, you know? that doesn't doesn't happen but you hear about it happening like i got my um publisher of my long-form memoir through my friend liz gonzalez i just did a reading at beyond baroque frank kearns was in the audience he heard my grandpa's house story said send me your manuscript i mean it took another three years to get in shape after that but i mean you i think when it's meant to happen it happens i mean look at that and i had a question about that I have really found, and I sometimes say I'm like an old white man now with my connections and the network I've built. <laughs> Every opportunity I've gotten, I'm not even kidding through UCR writers, I do, is from a friendship connection that I've made. Stephanie Barbie Hammer is watching. She helped me um, get in touch with Mark Givens, who did my chapbook about my public defense work and punk rock. And I really do believe saying yes and creating these friendships and being reliable, being on time being someone people know will show up and will and will meet our commitments as Latinos. That's even more important because we get judged harshly if we don't. Um, but don't you think it's those, those when you find and they don't all have to be Latinos. Some of the people that have supported me the most are not, but these connections and friendships you make, they will yeah. last you a career. I think yes and no, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, in order to start off in poetry, you got to publish in the magazines. You know what I mean? Mm. And those are talk about know, that. Yeah, those are democratic. You know, you don't, you, they don't even read your name. You know, so they're blind. Yeah, I, I, I felt like I did all my work as a young writer, submitting to those magazines, getting yep. rejected, putting the work in. You know, and that's like the the amateur of boxing. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. do, you have to grind, and yeah. so once you start getting into you know. And you might only get one acceptance for 20, 100 times. Especially in the beginning, you know? In oh, the yeah. I, that was five years for me till I got my first thing in a yeah. journal. Yeah. I remember 2014, I thought about quitting writing because I was not getting into the big journals like, oh. you know, um, American Poetry Review. And and I said, oh, um, I, this is, I'm fed up, you know? And what I did, Goodreads had a, a, a challenge and I tried to read 100 books that year. And after I read 100 books that year, I took a semester off of graduate school. And I just read. You know, I didn't go out. I was just like at the library and Amazon and bookstores and just whatever I could get my hands on. Wow. Contemporary, you know, I wanted to have a fresh voice. I didn't want to sound like, you know, William Shakespeare or something antiquated. So um, that's what I did. I read, you know, like it was literally 100 books. And um I think that's when I picked up line and line break and, and my, my, my line became more sophisticated. My, I started using couplets and, you know, before that I was just sort of letting the words strip down the page and it yeah. was more, it was more just about emotion and, and discovery. And now as being more professional and, and writing more polished verses. So I think that's when I made the leap. And then in 2015, I started publishing in the big magazines, you know, mm. after, after doing my time with, with you know deep reading so i always say uh you know a prolific writer is always first a prolific reader maybe not like yeah. maybe not like once they get there they, they're probably not still reading as much as when they were younger but in order to get there 
um, you have to read a lot. Yeah. I read that. I mean, I'm a reader. I read a couple books a week at least, but my favorite part of this podcast, I have to say is discovering writers and doing deep dive into their work, whether it's like for you, I, I really deep dove into this one book and I would, I can't wait till your other books get published so I can deep dive into that. But I, I love discovering writers that I never knew about, you know, because growing up, I read a lot of Judy Bloom and Harlequin romance novels. Now I still read like Stephen King and Twilight and all that. I, I'll read anything. I love all books, all genres. And I think that there's a built in snobbery to this canon that we've created where we might say, Oh, Judy Bloom is not that influential, but she is to that generation of readers that read her. And someone like Sandra Cisneros, she spawned a whole generation of writers that write in vignette form like me. And so, I mean, I think that 100% putting that time into reading and even when you're still, you know, putting the effort into publication, the, the work that you did to create your foundation I'm sure puts you in good stead as a teacher. So let's talk about that. You teach creative writing now, and I know you got your MFA. Like, how how is that different from the writing aspect? And is do you love that just as much, or what's your first love, writing or teaching? Well, I would say my first love is writing mm-hmm. and reading. Um, like I said before, I was I was nervous about teaching. I, I never saw a Mexican teacher, and I was introverted to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did. I was more of a natural poet in the sense that, like, I just read a lot. I wasn't reading theory, and so I was nervous more about teaching. And then eventually, you know, you start getting published in some of these magazines, and folks will just hit you up if you want to teach a workshop. And I was like, I've never done it before, you know, but I just got into Yale Review, and all these professors from all, all across the country are hitting me up how great a poem it is. And, I think I can do it. You know, like it was so like eventually the publications gave me the confidence to teach, you know? So I would just, eventually I said, I'm going to try it. And um, I tried it and it wasn't as bad as I thought, you know, and and you have to learn, you have to prepare, you have to lesson plan. And that's, that's when you gain the confidence in teaching In writing. I'm like, I'm like a natural boxer, you know, just put me in the ring and I'll dance around you and just, and just make a mockery out of you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I have confidence in my writing. Like no one could, mm-hmm. no one can mess with me, you know, Good but with teaching, you. it's about preparation. It's about organization, about, you know, picking up certain themes in the work, you know, it's, it's more, um, it's more organized, you know, and, and uh, less, less, um, less ego. Definitely. It's more about, it's more about the student and trying to get something out of them with, with um, a lot of these generative workshops that I do. Yeah. And, you know, my favorite kind of workshop is a generative workshop. And I have my friend Frances watching, who's a professor at Mount Sac of Anthropology. She has Dr. Frances Varela. And her and I um, had a workshop that we did for years with a woman named Linda. We just we would do a lot of it with prompts and we do that. And that's how we got some of our work done that is coming out in our books. And I just think there's something about generative. Uh, workshops that works for me now it doesn't work for everyone not everyone can do that but I love the thing that so strikes me about you is number one your humility you're just a super nice guy and super cool 
But number two, the way that you have this confidence in your writing and you really do see it on the page. Like when you say that you can box with the best of them and like make like you can literally run circles around people with your writing and then taking that and using that to teach. But having that humility in the non ego, because, you know, you take these classes with um, I'm not going to name any names with someone that has an ego and they talk about themselves the whole time. And you're really like, can we just effing, right? I'm not here to hear about who you met in Hollywood last weekend. I'm here, unless it's a concert, then I might want to know. But I'm here to hear to work, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely, um, you know, you're getting paid. They're paying you so that this workshop hopefully inspires them. So, you know, this isn't about me. You know, I read if, you know, if they ask me, maybe, but, but they don't really do that. But um, it's more about just trying to, you know, the main thing with the generative workshop is the prompt. And I didn't, I didn't like working with prompts. You know, I said that that's manufactured and beneath me. And I always had these ideas, which later I would eventually, you know, start using myself. And um, (laughs) yeah. And someone told me, can you teach a class with five prompts? And I said, I've never written a prompt before, but I'll, I'll do it, you know? And then I started figuring out how to do that. And, there's like an art to that as well, you know? Oh yeah. So, you know, over the past year, I've probably written like uh, 40 prompts, you know? And and then every time I write a prompt, I like to write a new poem to it. So, um, ah. so when you start doing that, you start to realize how poems work and their foundations and their inspirations and, and how to draft a poem as well. Because in the initial writing of, of the generative workshop, the first five minutes, you're not going to get a, a polished piece, you know? Right. So what I do with my prompts and my workshops is I include my first five minutes of writing with the prompt, the skeleton of the work, you know? And then I show the polished work, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of editing. So you can see how it, you know, the specification and, and um, you know, making things more more uh, musical. And, and um, so I, I like to show the process of it. I love that idea. I might steal that from you because I, I occasionally will do a workshop and I'll do a prompt with about, I usually like to write about place or time or music, and I'll go into like a little Buddhist, like Zen thing where I read them the prompt and they close their eyes and they imagine it. And then they just write without stopping. But I've yeah. never done it where I've done my own poem beforehand so I can show them the edited version 30 minutes later. That's brilliant. Thank you for giving us that yeah. little teaching technique yeah. because I think, it's almost like when you do a red line and you look at the, you know what I mean? It, it's yeah. the, it's the process of it. Um, Cindy Nessinger is here. She's amazing. She wrote a, a children's book and I just saw Cindy recently and she said, agree about reading a lot. I use reading a variety of styles of memoir books as a teaching tool for my memoir and pro- progress, my life between a tortilla and a white bread. That's Cindy Nessinger. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I just, so Talk about what you're working on now, about your other uh, manuscripts that you have. Tell my viewers how to find your books, how to take a class with you. I want you to talk about the class you're teaching. So I'm not going to give you too much to talk about, but just riff a little bit about the, what you're working on, your manuscripts that you have, and then how to take a class with you. Yeah, so I, I have um, two full-length manuscripts right now that I'm submitting to contests and, and to um, to publishers. Um one of them is called The Parachutist, and the other one is called Bad Mexican, Bad American. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Jose Hernandez DZ. Um, 
And that's where I do a lot of my, um, you know, you want to call it promotion or whatever you want to call it, just my rants. And, and um, I think I share a lot of things there. Also, I have, a, I, just, I just got a website, josernandezdiaz.com. So um, you could find me on there. I have um, critiques available for, for, um, for poetry feedback from one page, from uh, three pages up to 15 pages, different rates right there. And also, you know, I'm doing workshops with uh, Litro Magazine, the Writer Center in DC, Beyond Baroque. And um, I just signed up with, um, with um, the, the name Roots and Words. Roots, Words, and Wounds. And um, I want to take that one with you. Yeah, <laughs> that's, in, that's in October. So, um, so yeah, just follow me on, on Twitter is the main thing and, or the website. And um, yeah. And get this here. book, people, The Fire Eater. It's a steal at the price. Um, it's, you can even you, DM me or just uh, hit up the website and I'll get you a signed copy. I'll just mail it to you. And uh, I have Venmo for that. And we have a question really quick um, from Stephanie Barbie Hammer, who's one of my favorite people. Yeah. Um, she says, thank you so much for the conversation, Jose. I'm very interested in you mentioning the, mentioning the Surrealists, and I'm wondering what about them felt empowering and liberating. Thank you, Stephanie. And just a shout out really quick, Stephanie Barbie Hammer will be on in two weeks on June 8th, and she'll be promoting her book, The Pretend Plumber. Nice. Um, so I guess, you know, the Surrealists, what stood out to me was a lot of the melancholia and, and um the dark imagery that I was into yet it was, it was beautiful. You know, I grew up as, as a, you know, bipolar and I was into, you know, Radiohead and, and a lot of musicians that were sort of melancholy and I don't listen to it as much nowadays, you know, but I think just the aesthetic of, of, um, you know, surreal imagery and it took you to another world, you know? So I think just the escapism is what appealed to me and, and then I started writing just sort of in this vein of first thought and, and building from the subconscious and these, um, these writing exercises where it was, um, you try to just get it out and um, dreamlike scenarios. And it just appealed to me. I don't know what it, what it was that appealed to me. Um, I'm not writing like that as much. I still do, but I think it's a little more understated now in my current writing as opposed to my late twenties. Very interesting. And I'm wearing my Patty Smith t-shirt and it's funny cause she does a lot of um, improvisation and like kind of surrealist kind of stuff that she's very influenced by and the beat poets. And I just, I have this question. Why? Because even though you're clearly cool and ca like a cool cat and you're introverted, you say you're cool. Why are poets always the coolest? Is it the drama built into the form? What is it that makes you guys so cool? Because I'm a memoirist, first and foremost. I do write poetry, but I have no training in it. It's just completely just, it just comes out of me and I do it as is and edit it. But I mean, what is it about people that love the form of poetry that make you cool? Yeah, I think, you know, like it would have to be the rock and roll of all the genres, you know, and mm -hmm. the novel is like classical music and, you know, short stories or something in between, but um, I don't know. I was always into poetry, but I, I kind of liked the poetry that was nonchalant and sort of hip and, 
and um, you know, indifferent and and sort of moody and and just um, just uh, it was it was about persona and style as well. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, so understated and yet um, yet sort of understated yet intelligent. You know, so um, I don't know what it is about poets. I think you know, there's there's the rebellious aspect to it. Um, just the, the not giving up, you know, I don't know if you could curse on here, but, um, of you know, course you can. yeah, just, you know what I mean? Like when I was younger, especially, fuck, right? I did not yeah. give a fuck about anything. I just wanted <laughs> to write the best poetry out there. I didn't really care about being a professor or, you know, when I was younger, I, I was, I was just like mm -hmm. indifferent to all that. I was just about reading and writing and, and, um, so, you know, as you get as you get older, you mature more, and, and you start to see the world differently. But, but um, yeah, I think it's 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 like um, poetry is, is like uh, the rock and roll of the literature. I think you know, for sure, the poetry yeah. is the rock. It is, it is. I don't know what memoir is then, but poetry yeah. is rock and roll. It's punk rock. Your 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 work is so punk rock. I could just, you know, you think of. You know, everyone can, like Johnny Cash, right? He was a country singer, but he influenced punk. Why? Because he did not give a fuck. He used to yeah. flip off everyone. He challenged authority. And I think that is the running thread for me with all music that I love is that it challenges authority, whether it's rap, whether it's hip hop, whether it's punk, whether it's rock. If you could lead us out of this conversation yeah. with one more poem, I usually like dance or sing something sometimes, but you're poetry is so musical i would love to hear one more poem and then we'll say good night because i know you got to go teach a class is there any poem specifically that you want to hear or? yeah i mean i would love to hear something with either the skeleton or the mime whatever you want though okay i'll so we're talking about music i'll go with uh, the flowing circles awesome okay the flowing circles a man in a pink floyd shirt taught himself to play the harmonica he played beside a river next to the mountains a prominent waterfall splashed in the background. The man developed into an expert harmonica player. He signed a contract with an obscure yet refined record company. The man in a pink Floyd shirt eventually went on tour with the band. They called themselves the Flowing Circles. The Flowing Circles are the circles, as they were affectionately called, toured Europe and Latin America. When they finally returned to America, they took a domestic vacation. They bought dark sunglasses and rode bicycles by the ocean. When the time came to write their next album, they retreated back to the mountains by the river and waterfall. Thank you. Uh, everyone, please buy this book. Look up Jose Hernandez Diaz, go to his website. I will uh, find it and put it on like the gem page later today. Please buy this book. I swear, you'll read it over and over. It's like a great album. Thank you, Jose. This has been so much fun. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, everyone. And come back, everyone, on September, uh, on June 8th. I have Stephanie Barbie Hammer on. We're going to start at 7 p.m. that day, Pacific time, and go to my Life of Gem page. Please follow me. And you can watch Jose's podcast, this episode again, on my www.juanitaemans.com website. This will be embedded within the next week or two. So have a great night, Jose. Thanks again. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Bye, everyone.